Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Chris Holmes, and this is Burned by Books. Here you'll find interviews with writers you already love, like Jennifer Egan and Rebecca Mackay, mixed in with up-and-coming voices like Alexandra Kleeman and Ruman Alam. You'll find us wherever you listen to podcasts, but check out previous episodes at burnedbybooks.com and on Instagram and Twitter at Burned by Books. Let's start the show. When Anna, the protagonist of Lexi Freeman's hilarious and biting satire, The Book of Ein, finds herself cancelled after penning a black comedy about opiate addiction, she falls into the lap of a group devoted to the study of the works of Ayn Rand. A surprise to her and just about everybody else, Rand's novels and philosophy appeals to Anna's wounded self-conception and her desire to be visible as a writer and thinker in a culture that would prefer that she slink away. And so she endeavors to become a Randian, embracing self-interest and egoism as the root of the human capacity for creation. Anna will test out her new philosophical canon in a series of increasingly uproarious interactions with the cancelled, the culture makers, and in the farcical everyday circumstances of living in New York and L.A. But when Rand's life and work reveal their hypocrisies, Anna will find herself drawn in the direction of spiritual meaningfulness and to a cultish communal love utopia on the island of Lesbos in Greece. There, a different kind of master will attempt a new indoctrination with a similar promise of contentment. But rather than professing the goodness of egoism, Anna will now be asked to kill her ego and live for things outside of her self-need. The Book of Ein is a satire that doesn't shy away from asking profound questions about how and why we shape ourselves to fit the mold that society presents us with. And while Anna's odyssey through Randian and quasi-enlightened thinking mostly reveals the double standards that dominate any set of beliefs that promise freedom, 
she does indeed find herself changed in the process of adopting and leaving them behind. A side-splitting reed that blazes with a poison pen that spares no one, the Book of Ein feels perilously well-suited to our present moment. Lexi Freeman is also the author of the novel Inappropriation, long-listed for the Center of Fiction First Novel Prize and the Miles Franklin Award. She's a graduate of Columbia's MFA in Fiction and worked as a fiction editor at George Brazilier for five years. She also writes for television. Welcome to Burned by Books, Lexi. Thank you. Wow, what an amazing description of the book. That was so, so good. <laughs> well, thank you so much, and thank you for being here. Um, I want to start with a question about Ayn Rand, who I believed had been um, dead and buried as a as a cultural totem. Even the the Randian high school boys seemed to have given her up uh, in favor of of others. And I'm wondering why you decided to awake the the sleeping giant and, and what brought her as an intertext into your novel. I think I just was interested in her because. I kind of felt like I had tackled um, identity politics with my first book and I wanted to sort of attempt maybe the impossible, which is like looking at the sort of the parts of capitalism that we might um, have more sympathy for or kind of interest in um, on the left because I, mm-hmm. I assume my readers are on the left. And so I thought that was kind of, um, yeah, a little bit of a, a challenge to, to try to make the kind of godmother of libertarianism and free market capitalism, um, likable or at least compelling, um, and sympathetic in some way. So I think, I think that was the challenge I set myself and also I was just interested in her because I I knew a little bit about her biography and I thought she was an interesting character as a woman who had, um, you know, achieved pretty phenomenal success as a writer and thinker in the early and mid part of last century. And so I, I sort of wanted to explore her as a kind of, she's not a feminist at all. <laughs> some, so she's some, some weird proto-feminist something. So I kind of... Mm. Yeah, for those reasons, she was interesting to me. She's totally fascinating. And I was trying to imagine in her turn to uh, Hollywood, the the moment at which perhaps she and Faulkner would have like crossed paths, <laughs> having both like turned to to the other coast and, and writing. But she's so, yeah, she's very, very fascinating. And the book does a wonderful job of like reinvigorating her as a as a figure of fascination. When I when I think of characters, I, I don't usually think of them in in good or bad terms. And I don't really ascribe to the notion of uh, relatability as a as a key component for fiction. But I think it's a somewhat different thing to write the poorly behaved woman. Um, in that it breaks an unwritten societal contract about women's uh, necessary good behavior. And as bad behavior, if we want to call it that, concerns her her so-called selfishness. And I wonder if you had an interest in testing the boundaries for how society treats a selfish woman. 
Yeah, I think I was definitely interested in that. Um, interested in, yes, what it means to be a woman who, you know, is um, single, childless, of a certain age and kind of um, looking for meaning beyond uh, family or um, even sort of strong social connections. In a sense, looking for meaning in the way that um, male artists have looked for meaning for for um, ever in mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. kind of purely sort of Nietzschean sense, and um, I think that that was interesting to me. And also in light of this moment, which has felt extremely moralistic, and that that in a sense the only way to justify one's existence sort of seems to be to be on a mission to save the world or something like Mm -hmm. we all be saving the planet or else we kind of don't deserve to live. That's sort of the vibe you get sometimes if you're not posting about certain issues or trying to, um, uh, yeah, you know, uh, in a way, um, make your life all about trying to help those in in even greater need than you then it's sort of like in some sense that you are that you are not only squandering your life but somehow morally wrong and i yeah and there's a there's a kind of desire to cleanse uh out the people who are who don't meet that impossible standard right right yes definitely i think yes there's an impulse obviously to cancel or at least to separate oneself from the bad people who don't care enough about certain issues um and yeah i guess i was interested in someone who is unashamedly not trying to save the world in fact just trying to find meaning in in her own life and and what like interested me most about that is i suppose the idea of the artist as as that figure, because I think there is this kind of confusion or um, this conflict uh, in the arts where artists have to suddenly be like activists and and all all art worth um, mentioning or or reading or or um, promoting has to in some way be doing something to you know, improve the world or shed light on a certain issue or identity or, and I just, my feeling is that that is in many ways antithetical to the, the kind of, um, deeper source of the artistic kind of impulse. I think it comes from a much more, not necessarily selfish, just less, um, well, not very rational place and not, not a moralistic place. Um, and, and yes, there can be obviously um, sort of, you know, there are great artists who have written about terrible injustice and there is a sort of like, there is a, you know, the soul cries out at some level to, to have certain things be known and, and that's part of artistic expression, but I think we've come into this weird moment where that's the only the only legitimate form. And um and I think that just ends up producing when it's sort of done on mass, it produces 
something that doesn't feel like art. It feels it feels like a form of activism or some some kind of um, something else. And I, I yeah, I, I thought that that was something worth interrogating. Just that. Yeah. Do you think it's a Do you think it's a global phenomenon? I mean, I know you're originally from Australia, but U.S. based. Um, do you think it's it, it's it's U.S. centric, or is this now a global phenomenon in the treatment of artists? I think it's global. I think, um, yeah, definitely. I mean, I don't think it's. I think it's global in. I mean, it's in the English uh, language market. It's it's definitely the trend. I think it's less less of a thing in in Europe, and um, and I couldn't speak for most of the rest of the world. But I know that works that are sort of um, pushing to be translated into an English language market, I think it's definitely it's definitely reached all corners of the globe. And in the US, we've come into a less censorious, insane moment. Although in some ways, it's it's still pretty insane. But um, in I hope it's I hope it's getting better. <laughs> it's like readers are open and like interested in things that I think, you know, the most cautious and uh, unimaginative people in publishing just like won't, won't uh, allow themselves to, to sort of conceive of there being this market for that. Well, I want to, I want to drill down into that idea of, of what fiction and, and art can tolerate and think for a second about Anna's initial fall from grace, which comes with the publication of her novel that uses opiate addiction as a, as a comedic turn, and the New York Times ends up calling her classicist. The novel treats Anna as rather clueless um, as to the injury that this might cause in a country beset by by opiate addiction, but it also prompts this question of what is off limits in a in a satire obviously you're doing this play with a satire that we don't read that's written within a satire and so i'm interested in knowing how you took this idea of a of a taboo and and sort of fashioned it into this kind of meta satire yeah i mean i think i wanted to choose a subject that was you know obviously a reader can see how it would be offensive and, but, you know, there, there, were, there would be other t- topics that would be more, more, more um, difficult for a readership to kind of um, laugh at. So I think class is one that feels easier to, to tackle, at least in the first paragraph of a book. And, um, and I think it works for this character because she you know, is someone who comes from a more middle-class, upper-middle-class background. Um, and it felt like, you know, there is this tension in, in, in the U.S. where there is a sense that some people's brain is not as um, great or not, you know, as n- not worth, not as worthy in terms of um, representation that, you know, um, others and so I was sort of playing a little bit with this idea that some people um, might find it offensive, and then and then other people maybe would would you know 
find it amusing or that there was there was this kind of tension in built uh and also i guess yeah the idea of um the scatological i think was kind of tied to that that you know mm. this idea of shame body shame and um and sort of uh making fun of making fun of people who may um you know not have kind of the self-control uh to to not not shit their pants, I guess. <laughs> um, and and that becomes like a big thing for Anna herself as she as she um sort of has her own uh, experiences gastro gastrointestinal experiences. Of well, she's got that roommate who's constantly yeah. not flushing his turds down the yeah. down the toilet, which becomes this sort of constant refrain. Yeah, and I guess exactly. It's like um, which people, which people are ashamed of their bodily functions, and which people are not. I think early on in the book, one of these like hot young um, uh, influencer, micro content influencer type people, um, is over at that apartment with with her housemate, and you know, making jokes about fighting in front of boyfriends, and Anna is sort of furious that these young hot women get to sort of even contemplate behaving mm-hmm. like that whereas some people just don't get that choice in terms of like being getting to be gross and and obviously mostly it's men who kind of get to you know fart in front of their girlfriends and and it's all fine so there's a there's a play there with like who gets to be gross or literally mm-hmm. mm-hmm. be um of body with um in functioning body that in um in 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 any kind of public sense and and that there's like a hierarchy there uh you know her housemate kind of leaves his turds in the toilet which is in a sense part of his arrogance of being a cute young man who is so sort of self-absorbed he doesn't even notice that he's not flushing so so, like, I think it's it's playing with that from the beginning. This idea of shame and shit, and um, <laughs> class, and gender. What is that? How you pitch the book? Shame and shit. <laughs> Maybe that's why the Australians didn't want it. No, not no. I don't think I. No, there's been no no one. It's funny because I never thought of all the shits. I mean, obviously, I knew there was a motif that I was playing with, but it's. It's funny how many people have been like, okay, let's talk about shit. <laughs> no. um, when, when Anna heads off to LA to, to try and write a satirical treatment of Ayn Rand's philosophy and life, she finds the task impossible. And I wonder if Anna was experiencing or you were wanting to explore how seemingly our contemporary existence has taken on the form of satire in everyday life. I'm thinking, for example, about the transition in uh, Saturday Night Live to having sketches that are now simply replications word by word of politicians' actual speeches, requiring no writing at all to satirize the present. Um, Do you think we live in a moment of perpetual satire, thus making um, what it is you're doing quite difficult? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think there've always been absurd um politicians and people, you know, public um facing people and 
I don't know that that's so different, but I guess the difference is that there is so much content now that's available, so much content. And um, so, and obviously people in a sense are kind of creating little micro satires, you know, on TikTok. And there's a lot more of that kind of humorous content that, that is being generated and shared and, um, and so, yeah, I feel like it's more an issue of the medium rather than the, the sort of the moment. Although, yeah, I mean, Trump definitely made things more absurd mm-hmm. rest, that there's no question there. So there's a little bit of that. Um, but I guess with satire, I sort of feel like, so I was thinking about the definition of satire the other day and, um, and I feel a little bit like they're, they're, there are videos that sort of um, make fun of people, politicians, whatever. But I think if you're if you're like working on a satire, if you're like really, um, especially a satirical novel, it's like there's a sort of thesis that you kind of have to have about the culture. It's not enough just to make fun of what's happening. It's almost like that there has to be a sort of underlying argument in a way for like the direction the culture has gone in which is is it's this kind of you know absurd place and did you have that firmly in mind before you started writing or is it something that emerged for you i think i think i had an inkling of what it was and um and to me it's kind of about this sort of the hypocrisy at the heart of this idea of selfishness versus altruism or virtuousness or, you know, I think that's part of what the thesis is. And I'm not writing a nonfiction book, so it's never really a thesis thesis. It's just sort of a set of ideas that you want to kind of explore through this character and their um, journey through the plot. But yeah, I feel like for, for, for true satire, you sort of need, you know, you need more than just making fun of um, the crazy things someone has said or their funny hair or whatever, it, it, an oversized suit or like there has to be, um, I think there has to be more at, at work. And so, and so even when you can talk about like videos that are satirical, they, they would be satirical in tone, but, um, but I'm not sure that, yeah, I, I think there's something, there's something else that goes on in a satirical novel. Um, well, so that in a sense is, is a good thing as it means, I think that, um, a satirical novel is doing more than, than just, um, videos on the internet that might be very smart and very funny, but, um, yeah, there's more of a kind of, you know, through line, deeper exploration. I want to pick up on your use of the word hypocrisy there, because I really did feel like, uh, Anna's discoveries as she as she goes on this sort of odyssey, were about forms of hypocrisy and kind of being able to make visible the ways in which the most doctrinal parts of our culture are always riven by hypocrisy. And I wonder if that was either tacitly or or straight out front part of the thesis underlying your satire. Yeah, definitely. I guess it's sort of also about this idea that any, or this, this feeling that any ideology is kind of, uh, 
that it's like a sort of paradox where where any any choice or any sort of idea that purports to be big enough to hold all all instances or all um, conditions kind of can't be true or can't, like can't can't really like has to have some space inside of it for um, the opposite, its opposite. And that's like a more spiritual idea. And and that's why I think the book moves into a more spiritual place in the second half because ultimately I think the idea that any ideology is is big enough or sufficient to kind of hold all human experience is, is crazy and, um, and doesn't work. And so, yes, inside of that is this idea of hypocrisy that um, when people stick to, when they hew too closely to um, to an ideology, ultimately they will be contradicted or there will be some kind of, there will, there will be a, a moment where they, where it doesn't make sense anymore and they have a choice to defend it to the death or, mm-hmm. or to, um, to be open to something else and yeah I think that's that was a big part of the journey I wanted this character to go on the um I I thought that you might have had quite a bit of fun writing about the the group on Lesbos because it felt like a wonderful amalgamation of almost every documentary I've read read or, or seen about uh, you know cult-like figures and spiritual movements all sort of wonderfully kind of um, working together as this Frankenstein monster. And I, I wonder if you'd talk a little bit about influences there and things that kind of uh, inspired you to to come up with it. Um, well, I mean, I did, I did go to a place that is similar in some ways. Uh, so I have first-hand experience. Oh wow! <laughs> well, I want to hear more about that. <laughs> well, I mean, it's not, it's not, uh, it's a kind of meditation center that is similar. But uh, a lot of the ideas, I think, came from different, different philosophers, you know, different Eastern philosophers who I've, yeah, watched documentaries on or read their books. Um, you know, what's his name, Jay Krishnamurti, and and I remember watching. I actually watched this after I'd written the book, but maybe I had one more draft in me. Uh, I can't remember, but I, I rewatched uh, Todd Haynes's movie Safe, and there's like, you know, she goes to a cult at the end, and uh, and yeah, I, I just that was interesting. It was like, oh yes, the cult, the sort of like classic cult narrative where it begins with this sort of feeling that you know. You found this amazing community and this sense of belonging, and and it's like this is the answer. And then things start to slowly sort of deteriorate. And I was like, mm-hmm. yeah, I think that's the kind of classic. And what's that movie, Midsommar? You know, yeah. Well, it's always that sort of narrative. And I don't think this follows that exactly. I don't think. No, no. I don't think the cold ends up being um, this sinister sort of place. Um, the place that it's loosely based on certainly isn't that at all. I went back this summer, so it's not like, yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's a sort of good model, at least for the way that you, um, the way that, you know, we we jump on these, you know, ideologies or belief systems and it's all very exciting at the beginning and then things slowly start to unravel. And I think that's true of 
every kind of ideology and and in a context like a like a commune like that, you know, it's a much faster process. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's very true. I, I was very excited to encounter a term that threw me back to graduate school when I read uh, Pharmacon come up in casual oh. conversation in the novel. Um, and it's uh, it ends up being a, a point of discussion around Anna's canceling and the idea of being sacrificed for a greater good. Mm. And the Greek concept comes in and in a way of talking about the things that we insist on as curative also being a poison. Mm -hmm. And I'm interested how for you, Pharmacon operates as a way of talking about all these different societal attempts to cure, to, to um, sanitize, to uh, to make right uh, things, whether it's whether it's cancel culture or religions or corporatism, um, and I'd love to hear you talk about the pharmacon a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I think that section of the book, yeah, is talking about the idea of the scapegoat as as the pharmacon, the sort of like the cure for for the society is to find a sacrificial, you know, victim. Uh, and, and, you know, that, that used to be an actual human. And then I think the Greeks were the ones who then put the goat in made the goat. And anyway, but this idea of scapegoating, I think is sort of central to Anna's idea of herself as a victim of cancel culture, even though she's not really a big victim of cancel culture, but no. this is the identity that she's kind of, um, she's adopted in a way is is this sort of scapegoat and i think i think yeah that the the idea of the pharmacon that the, the thing that is supposed to cure the culture will also in a way poison it i feel like there is something to be said for the way that you know cancel culture and the big movements that have sort of um used it like me too have you know in in ways shed light on things that needed to be to be known in the culture and and have sort of you know created awareness in a way that that is useful but also i think the idea of um erasing the individual or an individual and a, a few individuals in in um service of of a larger sort of project or um for the group there is something poison the culture when when we do that when we when we decide that every life and every yeah every individual is not is not sacred and is not is not a person to be um to have compassion for to attempt to rehabilitate or i mean that's kind of a strong word but you know to to dismiss people as evil and bad and to kind of send them you know banish them I think when you do that, you always like, you know, I don't know, but the few times in my life when I have written someone off or just decided that, you know, they aren't worth trying to understand anymore or knowing, I'm never left with a good feeling. I work mm -hmm. with something poisonous in that act. Um, never mind what, you know, if you don't even want to think about what certain kinds of people deserve or not. It actually just poisons you and it poisons the culture that you are trying to fix or improve because it creates a 
kind of climate of fear and obviously surveillance. And I think that's kind of what, you know, we've seen a little bit um, in the wake of these movements where, where, you know, the supposed cure, this kind of the scapegoat, um, yeah, then becomes this like specter that sort of haunts, haunts us. And, mm-hmm. you know, this could happen to you or, you know, and, and yeah, it's divisive and it's, so yeah, I think that idea is very much at the heart of, um, what's happening in the book and Anna's journey. And, uh, and it's funny being in Greece, you know, I feel like the Greeks love to give you words like that, or, or they're all, they're always saying, you know, that English word is actually a Greek word and here's the, <laughs> so it does come up in these, like these amazing words that is so profound and useful. They do just come up in conversation with Greeks. Oh, that's amazing. That, my only, uh, my only introduction to it was through Derrida. So I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm just like that. Everyone's walking around, you know, I don't know. I, I think. I have to get to Greece. It's not really true, but <laughs> sometimes, yeah, it's a real, um, there is like a real kind of sense of um, pride in the etymology of these words. And Well, before I let you go, I'd love to hear a little bit about things you've been reading recently and, and anything that you're loving and, and might want to recommend to my audience. Um, sure. I, I've been reading... Um, I was reading The Novelist by Jordan Castro, which is great. Lots of, um, he also uh, writes uh, about shit. (laughs) (laughs) Well, for the the shit-loving members of Sherlock. (laughs) It's very funny and it's a very, it's a great um, kind of like deep, deep dive into sort of addiction and internet culture and, um, and again, the process of, of, writing a novel, the artist, the artist process. Uh, and then I've been reading the books of uh, Hervé Gibert. I don't know how to say that, but it's like H-E-R-V-E and Gibert is G- uh, G-U-I-B-E-R-T. And uh, I read a book called Crazy for Vincent over the summer, which I really loved. And it's just like there. I've never, I've never heard of it. He he was a uh, um he was writing kind of in the eighties mostly. He died of AIDS very young and um but his books are really just like shocking and so raw and um and funny. There's one I'm reading right now called Me and My My Manservant and Me, which is just hilarious. Yeah. It's, uh, even the title yeah, is fantastic. Good. He's so good. And so I'm just like tearing through all books those are those are great i have i haven't heard of them but now i have another scatological book and a raw book for uh returning to and if you are similarly interested in the raw and the scatological well much more than that but i can't recommend enough the book of ein by lexi freeman and it was a real delight to talk to you lexi thank you for taking the time my pleasure thanks chris Well, that's all from me for now. Thanks to Lexi Freeman for coming on the show to discuss her razor satire, The Book of Ein. You can find links to purchase The Book of Ein, along with all of Lexi's recommended books at the website, burnedbybooks.com. There you'll find all of our previous episodes, links to buy a podcast t-shirt, 
and ways to get in contact. As you listen, take a moment to rate the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. Until next time, this has been Burned by Books. Thank you.